Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. Now this week's topic was actually inspired by a listener's suggestion to look into coronation music, which is great timing. Because as you're likely aware, Great Britain recently crowned a new king, King Charles III. I'll let you in on a little secret. This recommendation came in after that happened, so... The timing was really impeccably timed because of that. (laughs) And of course, music was in plentiful supply during the ceremony. And we simply would not have been able to look into every single piece that was performed. But if you would like to see for yourself, there is a comprehensive list that was published by Classic FM, which we do have linked in our citations page. So then what are we talking about this week? Well, we picked one piece from the coronation ceremony that we wanted to dig into. The Pomp and the Circumstance, March number 4, by Edward Elgar. And for background bio on Edward Elgar, go check out episode 84, because we will only do uh, a small overview of relevant portions of his life in this episode. Almost nothing, really. Almost So go back and listen to the other episode, please. We'll wait here. (laughs) We'll be here when you get back. And now that you're done listening to that episode, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. So let's actually get right into this music, talking about the march. Of course, the number four in the title of this march implies that there are others, and it's a set of five pomp and circumstance marches, to be exact. There was supposed to be a sixth as well, but only fragments of that piece were discovered posthumously. And of course, you will be familiar with the most famous first Pomp and Circumstance March, because that is the graduation song, but it is also an unofficial British national anthem, the Land of Hope and Glory, with those patriotic words actually being added after its initial publication. As far as fame goes, the fourth march may be the second most famous of the Pomp and Circumstance marches. It too had lyrics added again some years after its publication in 1907. The lyrics were written to commemorate a fancy new road being opened in London called the King's Way. However, it is most often heard with just the instrumental, no words needed. And this march also has the dedication to one of Elgar's dear friends, George Robertson Sinclair, the organist at Hereford Cathedral. And as a side note, Sinclair is also honored in Elgar's Enigma variations. But what does pomp and circumstance actually mean? Well, obviously it gives an impression of something big and grand, and maybe a bit superfluous. Brits do love their ceremony. Now, Elgar was actually inspired by one of his favorite British authors, Shakespeare, for the title. Pomp and Circumstance is taken from a quote in Othello. Quote, 
Farewell, the tranquil mind. Farewell, content. Farewell, the plumed troop and the big wars that make ambition virtue. Oh, farewell. Farewell, the neighing steed and the shrill trump, the spirit-stirring drum, the ear-piercing fife, the royal banner and all quality, pride, pomp, and circumstance of glorious war. End quote. Wow. <laughs> Quite the quote. Now, Elgar noted later in life, after having lived through a pretty treacherous war himself, that the sentiment of war was not as popular and spirited as it once was. Luckily, the marches he wrote have always seemed to be more regarded as ceremonial pieces than war marches. And as we mentioned, this piece was used in the most recent coronation, and it actually served as the exit processional. Now, interestingly, to spill some tea, if you will, uh, this march was apparently also used as the exit processional for Princess Diana's wedding. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> Take with that what you will. I don't know what I'll make of that because I don't really follow the royal happenings. Neither do I. Allison, what does it tell you that when you thought that when you said spill some tea, my instinct was to say into the Boston Harbor? <laughs> I guess that means we're just red-blooded Americans. Indeed. <laughs> but thank you to all of our international listeners as well. If you're out there, we do love and appreciate you so, so much. <laughs> Please share, and share with all your friends. Now, enough talk and enough nationalism. Let's get into <laughs> the music itself, because this is a lovely march. First, we start off with a jaunty introduction played by the brass and winds with booming interjections from the timpani. This is a satisfying melody as it starts on the fifth, which is D, and moves predictably downward to end happily on tonic, or G. Not much fluff, just moving right along. And then this is repeated again even more grandly with the strings as well this time. But we do eventually have to get out of this comfort zone, so we actually move our melody into a minor rendition with the trumpets. Now, it might not be entirely British, but to me, this sounds like it almost has a touch of Tchaikovsky's own ballets. There is a bit of a bridge here after the repeat of the first theme. We break off and toy around with syncopated notes of the melody. Let's discuss this little transition. First, there is a definite conclusion to the A section with marked emphasis of the tonic note, not even a whole chord. At this point, we could have easily jumped right into the B section, but instead, Elgar extends out the transition, really hammering home the five to one movement for three whole measures. 
honestly, it really does bring this music to a bit of a halt, and we really lose the momentum, unfortunately. But then the brass come in with completely different sound, moving from 5 up to F natural, again D up to F natural. Now, F natural isn't even in the key of G major that we've been playing along in the whole time. What is the meaning of this? This is an outrage. Indeed it is, but <laughs> not to worry, Allison, because the melodic line smooths things over, and we realize this F natural was the four of our new key for the B section, C major. So nice. And as a side note, this four to one cadence is sometimes referred to as the quote, amen cadence, because it is commonly used in religious hymns. So it also makes it somewhat appropriate for these more solemn sort of ceremonies. And now we are in fact in the B section. If this was the March number one that we talked about earlier, this is where the graduation song part would actually be starting. But here is the number four March melody that Elgar has written. Now, much like the graduation song, the B section of March number four is also meant to be very legato. Also, the rhythm is drastically different from the A section. There's not a hint of syncopation to be found, and the background instruments play plodding quarter notes right on the beat, just like the graduation march. As we get more instrumentation throughout the repetitions of this melody, though, we see it's really not so boring. To dig into this melody a little bit, first we start on the 5, which is G, uh, and we make a little run upwards to our tonic C, and then we skip to the 3rd, which is E. And that's our first phrase. It's great, it's nice, it's a little scale, sort of. But in the next phrase, we start back on that same G. This time we rush past the tonic in third, and we actually make it all the way up a whole octave to the next higher G. And this is pretty exhilarating for following that first little scale, so it feels like something was actually accomplished here. Now the B section of the march doesn't stick around for very long, and soon we're back to the A section's jaunty tune, and in the key of G major, it's repeated almost exactly as we heard at the beginning for a while. Until we get once again to the transition. It's not as awkward this time in that it doesn't last as long, but we also don't get the brass interruption leading to a key change as the B section melody this time comes back in the tonic of G major. And it really doesn't start out at all timid this time. Basically, the whole orchestra is playing the melody with just some of the lower voices and the percussion playing those on the beat quarter notes instead. And here is actually a fun little embellishment that we didn't get to hear before. The strings play some very lushly voiced chords under this crescendoing held note. 
In the first iteration we heard, it was just that note, but this little chord progression underneath adds a little sparkle. And then everything culminates in a final coda. We have the melodies from the A and B sections fitting perfectly together, a wonderful harmony of legato and staccato, on beats and syncopation, and of course, pomp and circumstance from every section of the orchestra. Everyone say it with us. What key are we in? That's right. It's G G major. major. (laughs) And Elgar won't let you forget it with these last three measures that just throw the major chord at us using different voicings and arpeggiations until the very end. So that was Edward Elgar's Pomp and Circumstance March number four. Now we think it's wonderful to showcase a different uh, aspect of the Pomp and Circumstance marches, especially in that this time of year, many of you or perhaps your loved ones might be graduating to the sound of the, uh, we'll say, more played Pomp and Circumstance <laughs> March. <laughs> right about now. <laughs> yes. Maybe play, here's a fun prank to play on your graduation orchestra. Just replace the Pomp and Circumstance 1 music with the Pomp and Circumstance 4 music. There you go. Would anybody care or notice? No. No. Well, (laughs) your director might, but... Yep. You know, having had to play that for several graduation ceremonies of our peers... (laughs) I, I know <laughs> uh, it's an embouchure workout, that's for sure. Indeed, and I, I know that um, none of the directors that I have performed with or under have uh, particularly enjoyed 30 minutes of pomp and circumstance. So, <laughs> so maybe they would actually enjoy the switch out. Indeed. So if you're one of our former directors, you can send us a little winky face emoji, maybe, if you feel like it. If you would have wanted to change out the pomp and circumstance yes, march indeed. that we played. And if you haven't, <laughs> if you are listening to this as a former director or not, and you have a suggestion of other topics to cover, do send them our way. Because as you can tell, we love covering listener suggested topics. And if you know anybody that would like to become a listener of The Coffee House, do share our podcast with them. Of course, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, all that good stuff. You and can it's also free leave... to join. It is. You can also review us on those same sites, and that's wonderful. Helps the reach of the podcast grow and reach many more classical music and pomp and circumstance lovers this entire world over. Haha. Or the Coffee House Pomp and Circumstance Podcast. I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. Elgar's Pomp and Circumstance March Number 4 was performed by the University of Chicago Orchestra, conducted by Barbara Schubert. You can find the Coffee House on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. <laughs>